There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What do you think the Gospel writers were doing when they sat down to write their accounts of the life of Jesus? Luke tells us that he decided to write an orderly account for a guy called Theophilus so that he may know the certainty of the things about Jesus he had taught. John said he wrote the Gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in the name. Matthew and Mark don't tell us, uh, although it's not hard to work out. We know that when we speak or write, we're usually trying to do something to the person we speak to or write to. We're trying to shape or change them, usually in very minor ways. Even if we stick to bald facts, we're trying to change a person from someone who did not know that fact to a person who does. And perhaps knowing that fact will change them. There's a truck bearing down on you. Get out of the way. And you are changed. Either from a person who was going to be killed and wasn't, or to a person who is. But often we're looking for more complex responses than that. We're trying to engage their emotions, to let what we say shape the way they think about us and themselves. I'm trying to teach and encourage you now. Basically, all communication engages with and shapes our emotions. The Bible calls for emotional responses. Not just certainty and faith, as Luke and John say, but but what do we think about Jesus as a son, as a teacher, as a healer, as the Christ? as someone we are being invited to love and trust and join forever. Uh, And if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm sure your emotional response to Jesus has changed over time, and many emotions come to mind. What are your emotional responses to Jesus in the different circumstances uh, described in the Gospels? Uh, And what's your emotional response to the centurion in our story today. Do you like and admire his faith and humility or are are you challenged by it? Maybe like me, you are a bit jealous of him. Jealousy can be a positive thing as well as a negative thing, but he's humble and, and faithful and I'm sure many of us would love to have faith like him. Uh, and he asks for healing and gets it. Uh, I trust Jesus, but I'm used to not getting what I ask for, even if, even if it seems a good idea, and that has emotional challenges for me. Matthew may have been thinking he was just recording a miracle of Jesus, but I suspect he was also trying to encourage or inspire faith like that of the centurion, or challenge Jews who were still stuck in their legalism and did not really trust or love God. But whatever Matthew's intentions, his decision to communicate necessarily engages with me where I am, with all my faults and hopes and capacity for, for different emotions. He may not have thought one emotion would be jealousy, 
but we can't control the effects of our words on other people. Uh, we let, even people that we know well, uh, let alone people we don't know who live 2,000 years later. But God knows. God knows how communication works. He made us as people capable of having emotions and he knows that words engage and shape our emotions. Uh, today I'd like to share some of my emotional responses to this passage to show that thinking about our emotional responses is part of understanding and responding to God. Uh, it starts with Matthew telling us that Jesus had entered Capernaum. Uh, that is a town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus based most of his ministry. Uh, and that is a photo that I took uh, on uh, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and this is another photo we took. Uh, if you go there, uh, go to Capernaum today, you'll find a weird spaceship-looking Catholic church built over the top of the ruins of an earlier church that were built on top of the ruins of a house which people say was Peter's, uh, where Jesus may have often stayed. So I can't hear Capernaum without thinking of a spaceship church, but you may have other associations. Matthew tells us a centurion comes to him asking for help. Lord, my servant lies at home paralysed, suffering terribly. Often Jesus knew people's needs before he was told. But here we see Jesus being told. Uh, it's enough to engage our sympathy and our concern. Who wants to hear that someone is paralysed and suffering terribly? Jesus replied, shall I come and heal him? Why the question? My curiosity is engaged. The name Centurion suggests to us that he was in charge of a hundred men. In fact, he could have had more or less, but the point is that he was an officer with both position and power. He may not have been a Roman, but he was certainly a Gentile, a non-Jew. So his house would have been unclean and off limits to a Jew like Jesus. We know that Jesus did not always follow the law, like with the Sabbath and touching diseased people, but there is no record of Jesus ever going into the house of a Gentile, unless you include Pilate's palace where he went to be tried. But Jesus didn't have a choice then. So the centurion is being respectful of Jesus by not asking him to come to his house to heal his servant. And Jesus is honouring that respect. And I like that. They are taking care with each other. The details Matthew chooses to share with me are shaping my emotions, leading me to think positively of both the centurion and Jesus. And then we have the extraordinary declaration of faith by the centurion. The French theologian Calvin observed that the centurion had been healed by Jesus even before Jesus heals the servant because the centurion spoke from faith. Faith is a gift from God that heals us by bringing us into relationship with God. The centurion didn't just hope that Jesus as some type of medicine man could heal his servant. He trusted 
that Jesus could and would heal him. The first thing that strikes us is the humility of the centurion. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. He was a centurion. He represented the emperor of Rome, which at the time controlled all the lands around the Mediterranean and much of Europe. The centurion had power over life and death. Yet he not only felt, but was prepared to say to a Jew, I am unworthy of you. It it can't help but challenge our sense of our own humility. And there's no sense of entitlement here. it's, It's just lovely. But before we have a chance to digest that thought, to process that emotion, we are confronted with a statement of the centurion's faith. Up until now, we have no record of Jesus healing by word alone. In the previous story, he had touched a man who had leprosy, a a nasty skin disease, and healed him with the words, be clean. But we have had no account of healing at a distance. How did the centurion know? Jesus could do this because he knew where Jesus' power and authority came from. What faith? Just as the centurion's power and authority came from the Roman emperor, he knew Jesus' power and authority came from God. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I'm glad I'm not the only one astonished at this expression of faith. Matthew tells us that Jesus was astonished and said, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What a wonderful affirmation. And also wonderful to know that Jesus can be astonished. He's like us. But remember, the centurion still had a servant at home who was paralyzed and suffering terribly. The centurion had gone out on a limb to ask a Jewish teacher uh, to help him. He had risked contempt for his own people and he had risked rejection by Jesus. And I'm sure that many of you can relate to that. When we do and say things among our families and friends that show our faith, when we go out on a limb where our faith leads us into vulnerability, we can feel for the many layers of anxiety the centurion must have felt and be happy for him that Even in those first few words of Jesus, he knew his servant was safe. He would have been happy to hear Jesus say he would go and heal the servant. But to have his faith acknowledged by Jesus himself would have given him even greater confidence that his hopes would be fulfilled and his faith was firmly founded. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. You are an example to all. For whatever feelings of admiration or or jealousy we may feel, our hearts must be warmed by the thought that Jesus is like this. The one we trust sees clearly 
and acts justly by giving credit where it's due. Jesus himself, in human terms, was going out on a limb. He was talking to a hated Roman, the symbol of oppression of Israel. He had implied he would break with the Jewish rules of ritual purity and go into the house of a Gentile. If Jesus could do this for a Roman centurion, what might he do for us? Now, that's the way that Matthew puts this together. That's the way that God works through his scriptures. What does this mean for me? Jesus loves someone who many would have seen as an enemy. Back in chapter 5, Matthew had recorded Jesus saying, But I say to you, love your enemy. And now we see that in action. There's no hypocrisy with Jesus. And Jesus makes sure his words of affirmation and praise do not get lost. He could have just said he admired the centurion's faith. But he goes much further. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And clearly here Jesus uh, is aware of the larger audience uh, of the Jews who are still stuck in their legalism, who thought that because they were sons of Abraham that they were safe. But most of us are not in that situation. We can understand that message, but we're still reacting emotionally to what Jesus is saying about this centurion's faith. Jesus is not just saying that he will heal the servant, one of many people Jesus would heal over the years. He's affirming the simple, dare we say, childlike faith, like that of the centurion. He's saying that that counts for more than being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs of Israel. It's not about ethnicity, it's it's about faith. Uh, And it's so wonderfully inclusive. And while we may be delighted with the centurion that his faith is vindicated like this, we can see us in this story as well. For Jesus is opening up heaven to all who trust him, who trust that he, above all others, has authority over life and death, who trusts that the very power of God resides in him. And so our admiration and perhaps jealousy give way to a wave of God-inspired hope that with a simple and pure faith like this, we too can be safe. But there's another emotion here that Jesus engages with. Of all the beings that he has created, we have the ability to think of the future, to contemplate the eternal. No doubt many beings are capable of thinking about where the next meal is coming from. Bears and squirrels store up food for winter. But here Jesus engages with our desire for meaning. We don't just want to get through the next winter or get through the pandemic. We want our lives to have meaning. And meaning comes from outside ourselves. I think that a a thought 
no, sorry, to, to think that a thought is just an electrochemical reaction in the complex organ that is our brain it is next to useless. But to think that our faith not only leads to blessing in this life, but to so much more engages with our whole being, with our search for why we are here and our desire that, we, that what we do has consequences beyond ourselves. The centurion will have done a good thing for his servant. The centurion will probably feel good and relieved that he had done a good thing. But Jesus' words in effect say, your words have eternal significance. Significance recognised by the eternal God of all that is seen and unseen. Your faith has made us friends forever and will inspire my followers for centuries to come. And that desire of us to have meaning in our lives is really important and is one way that we react to these words that Matthew has recorded for us. The centurion probably had no relationship with the emperor of Rome. He may have never seen him and would never have had any direct communication with him. The centurion's power was delegated through many people between him and the emperor. But here we have the one supreme authority over life and death, the one who held divine power, the one we know as God himself, saying that he will join Jesus at the great feast in heaven. Jesus' words perhaps engage our fears and our sense of empathy as well. For he speaks of some people who lack faith, being cast into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is Hebrew idiom for suffering. And we may think of people we know who risk that end and who we would like to see have a simple but adequate faith like the centurion. So it works at that level as well. And we're challenged to not be ashamed of this story, to not see it as too good to be true. And that takes faith. And it shows that faith changes things. And finally, we experience the emotion of relief. Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. For some, this will be evidence that they need this Jesus, but that Jesus doesn't need to, have, to be physically present with us, to be able to help us, and proof that he is divine. Medical science usually works on, uh, on physical means of healing, but Jesus can heal at a distance. But more than that, I sense that many of us want a happy ending. We may put up with some realism in our movies and books, where goodies don't always win, or where the ending is enigmatic. But deep down, we want the lost child to be found, and true love to win in the end. It's almost as if that's the way that God has made us, to, to want a happy ending, and he provides it. We do not know what happened to the centurion and his servant. 
uh, after Jesus healed the servant. Sooner or later, they would have both died. But we know there is a happy ending for the centurion and the servant if he had faith like this. And we can finish this story by knowing that we too can be part of that ending where we can be friends with Jesus and sit down at the heavenly feast with him. I'm pretty sure that when Matthew sat down to write this account of the life of Jesus, he did not anticipate the broad range of emotions this tale would evoke. But we are human beings. We are emotional beings. Uh, We are beings that seek meaning beyond the immediate and the physical. And that is what Jesus offers when we turn to him in faith. So today, I hope that you've seen that the text is richer from considering the way that God engages with our emotions. And and that's part of knowing and loving God. He, he, He made us emotional beings and he connects with us and that shapes us and uh, it's just a wonderful thing to to realize that God understands us so well and knows how to communicate with us but we have an opportunity now to communicate with him uh, in the words of our next song so I invite you to stand as Zoe and Carlin bring us before the throne of God above